All right, well, if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, why don't you grab them? And uh, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 41, if you will. Isaiah chapter 41. Now, next week, we're going to be starting our series on the end times. And so I know many have asked about uh, questions concerning the end times and the virus's role in the end times, etc. And it's something that we've wanted to address here now for several months. And uh, starting next week, we are going to do just that. We're going to start a look at the uh, eschatology, the study of the end times in Scripture. So you won't want to miss it. But for this morning, I felt it necessary to address what I feel to be an urgent uh, need within the body of Christ. And I wanted to speak to you about fear. Fear is a very powerful motivator in a person's life. It can be a strength, but it also can be a weakness. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, here together in Isaiah chapter 41, starting in verse 8. So let's read the text together, verses 8 through 10 together. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farther corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Father, we pray that your word would speak to us this morning. And we thank you for your word in times such as this. Speak to us. Encourage us. Comfort us concerning fear. Father, we love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this point in the book of Isaiah, the children of Israel are now getting ready to leave their Babylonian captivity and return to their own personal nation. And they were fearful in doing so. And the word fear there has a dual uh, nature to it. It has a dual definition. They were afraid of the enemies in whom they were faced since they now were uh, simple people without the means in which to defend themselves. And they were also afraid that God possibly has abandoned them due to the sin in which they committed that led to their captivity in the first place. But God here, through the prophet Isaiah, wanted to encourage his people at this moment because he sensed amongst them a fear, a fear in their hearts, a fear in their minds that would inhibit them from being obedient to what God would have them to do. You know, God has given us the emotion of fear, and it can be a strength. It can keep us from danger. It can tell us when we are getting uh, too close to the edge, and it causes us to back off so we self-preserve. But this same emotion can be exploited, and therefore fear can become a weakness. And when fear in our life is exploited by others, possibly those who are in charge, it can inhibit us from being obedient to what God has asked of us and what God has called us to do. And so here in our text this morning, God wants us to know this morning, as he did the nation of Israel, that he is with us 
And he gives us five pillars to stand upon to allow us to overcome fear in our lives. I argue this morning that one of the things that I have seen drawn out through this crisis is the exploitation of fear in people's lives. Many of the headlines of the news are articulated and crafted in such a way to provoke fear within someone. The the statistics, when they are given, they are given in a certain way to, again, uh, elicit fear in those who hear these statistics. And why is this happening? Well, for the purpose of control. Control will cause you to submit to authority that you believe is higher than yourself. We as Christians have no authority higher than God himself. And so we as believers in Jesus Christ need to understand that we need to put our fear in a proper context. Of course, God says that fear is the beginning of all wisdom. It challenges us to know and to understand that God is the context in which every six circumstance that we find ourselves in is challenged and uh, gauged by. So you and I as believers, we have a whole different perspective upon fear than those who do not follow Jesus Christ. Now again, am I saying that it isn't an urgent need or a crisis that we are in? Yes, I believe that this pandemic is real. I believe that many have suffered from it. And unfortunately, many have died from it. But now that we're coming through the other end of it, it appears to me that some would choose to exploit the people in which they uh, lead and govern rather than helping them emerge from the other side of the pandemic healthily and safely. And so I wanted to speak to you this morning as the members of our church, not to let anyone exploit that natural emotion of fear, but again, place it in the context in which God would have you to place it. It is so important that you and I not be taken advantage of, not be led by a a, a circumstance that we don't know if it's true or not. You know, we talked in services past about this wilderness of the what-ifs. Well, what-ifs are often great provokers of fear, and they would hinder us from doing some of the some things that God may be leading us to do. Maybe you've been one of those people that want to become adventurous. Maybe you want to take a hot air balloon ride. But then you get there and you realize how high that balloon goes and then your fear of heights moves in and possibly keeps you from one of the most incredible experiences that you can have. Or maybe, like me, you fear flying. You know, I, I have a, a fear of flying that's irrational at times. And I know that flying is safe and so forth. And sometimes I have to pray to overcome that irrational fear, to allow myself to enjoy the benefits of flying. And, in some cases, to be obedient to the Lord. Because He wants me to go somewhere that He is leading me to go. And I don't want to hinder that simply by being afraid to fly. The children of Israel were in a quandary. For 70 years, they had been in Babylon. They had grown accustomed to the Babylonian life. Many of them started families, had become businessmen. Many had become, uh, you know, part of the Babylonian culture. They had been assimilated into the Babylonian culture. And now God was leading them back, but it was fear that was inhibiting them from going. 
they realized that once they did go back, they were going to once again have to contend with the enemies, uh, their natural enemies that surrounded them. And now they didn't have the wall of Jerusalem and they didn't have the military means in which to defend themselves. But they were also afraid that if God wasn't with them, that they would be further defeated and possibly lose their land forever. But God wanted to encourage them to trust him at this moment. And here's how he did it. And I believe this is how God wants to encourage you and I this morning. By first and foremost, reminding us of our personal relationship with him. Notice what he says here in verse 8. But you, Israel, and of course that's a term of one governed by God, one who praises God. We are his servants, like Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. For you, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. In the New Testament, God makes it abundantly clear that he chose us before the foundations of the world, predestined us, then he called us and saved us and justified us, and one day will glorify us. And by mentioning Abraham here in our text this morning, he's saying that the relationship I have with you, though it is unilateral, it's a relationship that God initiated, that God started, etc., but it is one of familiarity. It's one of friendship. It's one of love. And I have this relationship with you, he is saying to his people, Israel. I have made this covenant with you that he is saying to his people, Israel, and you are my servant. And even, even when you are faithless, I am faithful, he says. And even when you are weak, I am strong, he says. You and I have to realize and understand, first and foremost, that we are a child of God, and that God knows and is sovereignly reigning over our individual lives. He knows what we're going through before we experience it. He allows certain things to occur in our lives to draw out from us conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. He has every hair on our head numbered, every tear we've ever cried in a bottle. God knows us personally. His sheep know him personally and hear his voice. We have that intimate relationship with Christ and therefore with the Father. And you and I are never alone. We are his. And nothing's going to happen to us that God hasn't allowed. We're not going to die one day before God has called us home, regardless of the circumstances. We need to trust him one of the aspects of Christianity that I believe that is often lost in our Western culture is the idea of eternal life. Why did God promise eternal life to those in whom followed him? Is Christianity simply the summation of following Christ to one day live in heaven for all eternity? No, I believe that eternal life was given to those who follow Jesus Christ because our following Christ may require of us the laying down of our life in the sense of a martyr. And he wanted us to know that even if our life is taken from us, we have eternal life. 
we have an abundance of life with Him for all eternity. It was to allow us to relinquish our lives, and I believe that was demonstrated through the disciples who all lost their life for their following of Jesus Christ. I believe even Paul demonstrated that for him to live is Christ, to die is gain. We don't often take that to heart when we call ourselves Christians, when we live for him here in the United States, because we're not persecuted to that level or to that degree. Well, at least not as of yet. So we often don't consider that. You see, God wanted to take the sting out of death. He wanted us to know that death was no longer the final enemy. And that even if our lives are taken from us for the purposes of our following Jesus Christ, we have eternal life with him. And so God is saying to his people, I have called you, I have chose you, I have led you here, and now I am leading you out of here, and please be obedient to me. And do not fear. And that's the next point. After once again articulating and uh, shaping for them in their understanding of their personal relationship with God through the covenant that Moses had given them, he now leads us to what may hinder them from being obedient. You see, God introducing himself in verse 8 in the manner in which he did, he is saying to them, in effect, that I know what's best for you and I am with you at this time. But what would hinder them is fear. Fear not, he says. Do not fear the enemies in whom you will face, the authorities in whom you will encounter. Do not fear that I have abandoned you, for I have not. I've chose you. You're my servant. I am your Lord, your God, and I am with you. Again, we need to be very careful that this natural element of our life, this fear, is not provoked in a manner that can therefore exploit us and inhibit us from doing what God would have us to do. We need to be careful. We need to be objective and not see things irrationally and emotionally. We need not to be sucked in to the doom and gloom of this world per se, but understand that our God is still on the throne and has demonstrated his authority over his church for the last 2,000 years. And nothing is going to happen that God hasn't allowed in and through our personal lives. Let us understand and have the attitude that Meshach uh, and Abednego had in the book of Dadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. When they were confronted with the necessity of bowing themselves to the statue of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, they chose to obey God rather than to obey man. And as as a result, they were then willing to face the consequences, which was to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And then they said to those who were persecuting them, if If God wants to save us, he can perfectly save us. If he doesn't save us, then we will be with him. It doesn't matter. We are going to remain obedient to God. And of course, you know the story, and God met them there in that fiery trial. But I love that attitude. 
And I believe it's that attitude that allows us to master our fear and therefore to use fear properly in the context of God. You know, often we become the most fearful when we take God out of the context, when we take God out of the equation. Because then we are looking at our circumstances and our situation or the crisis in which we face in and through our own eyes and in and through our own power and ability. But when we look at things through the lens of Christ, when we look at things with God in the equation, things seem much different. Things don't seem nearly as overwhelming that we know that one who loves us and knows what's best for us is sovereignty, sovereignly in control and will take us by the hand through the circumstances in which we face. And I think that is a blessed promise. So he says, fear not. The word fear there is a very torturous word in the Hebrew. It's a fear that would paralyze an individual from doing what God would have them to do. And you know, throughout the history of Israel, fear has played a role in the people of Israel's life, inhibiting them from doing what God would want them to do. I think of Moses. When God called him to go and deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt, his first response to God was to summarize for God his personal limitations. He couldn't speak properly, and who was he? Uh, to go back and deliver God's people. And this is when God revealed himself. See, Moses, like us, was looking at things through his eyes, his abilities, and had left God out of the equation. But God immediately reassured him that God was with him. And he also allowed Aaron to be a support to him, which in the end turned out to be a problem in and of itself. But I think of the children of Israel when they were coming through to the promised land. And instead of going into the promised land that they had finally arrived at, they decided to send in 12 spies. And of course, you know the story there too. Ten came out, the majority, with a voice of fear and gloom and doom. Uh, one that would discourage the people from entering into the land in which God was giving them one that would provoke and exploit their fear into resisting and disobeying what God would have them to do. But then there were two, Joshua and Caleb, who came out with this abundance of grapes and they said, hey, even though there's giants in the land, it's cake, it's bread, we can do this, not a problem. But of course, you know what happened. The children of Israel listened to the 10, the majority, because the majority perspective is always correct, right? Just because something is popular doesn't make it something that is accurate. But the two came out, and no one would listen to them. And as a result, they wandered the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died out. And due to unbelief, they were not able to uh, take what God was giving them. And that unbelief was fueled by fear. I think of David, when he saw the scenario of Goliath and the other Israeli troops, the men cowered at the size of Goliath. And David, looking at Goliath with a completely different mindset, 
with God in the equation, he said, let's see if what God will do today. Let's see if God will give us the, him in our hands today. And sure enough, he did. But these are just several examples of Old Testament examples of where the children of Israel, where the people following God were inhibited by their fear. And it's only until God was brought into the equation that they were able to proceed properly and suppress or control that fear because they knew God was with them. And again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. The application of knowledge that we have is always in the context of the fear of the Lord, a reverence, a respect for God. So he says here, number one, to encourage him, notice with me in our text, he says, I am with you. I am with you, number one. God with us is always the majority. As I like to say, God plus one is always the majority. This, of course, eased their mind concerning their fear that God had abandoned them. No, God is with them. And notice that in this fear, he says, For I am with you, and therefore do not be dismayed. See, in the abandonment of God, they were then looking at the circumstances through their own abilities and immediately were becoming dismayed by it knowing that the circumstances were vastly uh, uh, superior to their personal ability. There's nothing they could have done to effectually defeat the military enemy in which they would encounter. And without God, they were up the creek from the very beginning. You see, when we take God out of the equation, we often are led to a position of being dismayed, unsettled without rest, fearful, worried, anxiety-ridden, and driven. And the way God steadies this is by reminding us that He is with us. The New Testament tells us that God is with us and that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And then Paul wrote in the book of Romans, if God be for us, then who can be against us? And so you and I as believers in Jesus Christ need to remember first and foremost that God is with us through the trials, troubles, and tribulations that we face in life, including the current crisis in which all of us are contending with this morning. But notice he also says something here. Number two, he says, I am your God. Number two, I am your God. You know what this means? It means that he's taking personal responsibility for you. It means that because he is our God, we are then able to claim every promise that he has made his people in his word, knowing that he is faithful to perform and to provide every promise that he has made to us. He is our God. He has that relationship with us. He knows us personally. It's not just that he is with us, but that he loves us and cares for us as a father would take care of a child. And he says, because I have from the beginning of time chosen you, I foreknew you, I predestined you, I chose you, I justified you, I will glorify you. The work of God in our lives. He is our God and we are his. 
Notice what Paul says in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that those who, are, uh, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Though, for those whom he has foreknown, he has also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those in whom he predestined, he also called. And those in whom he called, he also justified. And those in whom he justified, he also glorified. He is our God. He is not going to abandon us. He takes responsibility for us. And when we are weak, he is strong. And when we are faithless, he is always faithful. And as a result of being our God, he says, number one, I will strengthen you. God knows us so well. He knows our frailties. He knows how we are made. And he understands who we are as individuals and the weaknesses in which we contend with. And God is stating to them that where you are weak, I will be strong for you. Where you are incapable of responding the way you need to respond, just due to the fact that we're fallen individuals before a holy God, that we're frail before him. He says, I will strengthen you. I will give you the courage. I will give you the heart to move forward. I will give you not only the strength, but the will to obey. I will allow you to do in and through my spirit, he says in the New Testament, those things that are supernatural to the reaction of man. I'll let you love when you are persecuted and hated. I'll let you find peace when you are surrounded by an enormous circumstances uh, that would take your peace and rob it from you. And this peace will surpass all understanding. I'll allow you joy, even when joy is not found through our happy experiences in life. This is the strength of God, taking us beyond ourselves, carrying us when we are weak, allowing us to know that he is there for us and he will see it through. Recently, I saw a video on Facebook of an athlete running in a marathon, and I don't remember which country it was in, so I apologized. But he saw as this athlete as he was running, he had not won the race, but as he was finishing and finishing strong, he noticed that an individual was struggling deeply to finish. He was limping each and every a step of the way. He was hurt. He was tired. And this man stopped. And he sacrificed his position in finishing to carry that other man who was limping and weak across the finish lines so he may finish also. This is where God takes us above and beyond our own personal limitations and our own personal strengths. Now let us be clear that the success, the success, uh, the success that the children of Israel had in the Old Testament was always at the hands of God. And in fact, their own personal ability, well, it meant very little in the equation. But they still had to go out and fight the battle. They still had to go and obey what God was directing them to do. 
I will strengthen you, he says. Number two. Number three, he says, I will help you. This word help here is when God now has to intercede completely. Where the circumstances are so vastly superior to our ability that we have no hope in rectifying the problem in and of ourselves. For example, the children of Israel under the bondage of Pharaoh. Pharaoh would not release them. He would not let them go. He required them to continue to stay at home and shelter in place. And the people felt helpless. There was nothing that they could do. When they resist, Pharaoh made it only harder upon them. And then God stepped in, sent Moses. Moses asked three times. And then God intervened because Pharaoh resisted three times. And the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt to deliver his people from the hand of tyranny to show himself strong. This is God helping. This is saying, I know it's vastly beyond you and I'm going to do it. I'm going to help you in it. Secondly, when they came to the Red Sea, the Red Sea stood before the children of Israel in their deliverance and the army of Egypt behind them. Those circumstances were confusing, to say the least, to the children of Israel, but yet God saw in and through them. And of course, no one anticipated that God would lead Moses to go up and to raise his staff and to see the Red Sea part before them. The Red Sea parting before the children of Israel, allowing them to cross on dry ground, a means of deliverance for God's people. But that same means of deliverance for God's people to the children of Egypt became the instrument of judgment. Jesus Christ is our ultimate deliverer. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And through him, an individual can find salvation and eternal life. But those who reject Christ and who he is and his authority, for those will have to stand before him and give an account. And they will bow the knee and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord but then it's too late. That same means of salvation for you and I is a means of judgment to those who reject him. And God demonstrated that there at the Red Sea. But I also think that once they got to the promised land, Joshua was given extraordinary uh, instructions in defeating Jericho. And you know the story. March around Jericho. And then blow the trumpets and the walls will collapse. And you know the story. And God did it for them. This is part of God's faithfulness. This is the way God works for his people on behalf of his people. And so he says to the nation of Israel and to you and I, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you, and lastly, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The language here is so beautiful that I hope I do it justice in defining it for you and articulating it for you. Notice that he specifically says that I will uphold you by my right hand. 
the right hand of the king was always a place of prominence. This is the argument that the disciples put forward to Jesus. Who is going to be able to sit on your right hand? When Jesus stood up, when Stephen was being martyred for the faith, Jesus stood at the right hand of the Father. Now he is saying, I have given you my right hand, and I will see you through it. We need to know and understand who we are in Jesus Christ. That the Bible calls us heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Prince and princesses of the kingdom of God. And that he will hold us and carry us and lead us as a father leading his son or a father leading his daughter through the incredible difficult times that we face here on this earth. Oh, what a blessed promise it is. What an incredible illustration it is. And Paul picked up on this in the New Testament and he reiterated this for us. Notice what he said in Galatians 4, 7 when he says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In Romans, he reiterated this once again by stating, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Dad. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What a promise that is. And I believe that these five pillars will will sustain us and to strengthen us and be the foundation for us. That when we experience fearful things, when we come to a place where we are overwhelmed and we believe that the fear is now welling up within us to uh, inhibit us from being obedient to what God has led us to do, let us remember these five things going forward. Let us write them down someplace that they will always be with us and always be there to guide and to help us. Number one, that God says, for I am with you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Number two, I am your God. Do not look anxiously about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Number three, I will surely help you. Number four, and number five, Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I summarized it this way in closing. Fear not, for God is with you. Fear not, for God is your God. Fear not, for God will strengthen you. Fear not, for God will help you. Fear not, for God will carry you by his right hand and uphold you.